You're listening to the Evanston Bible Fellowship Podcast. EBF is a community of sojourners empowering one another to cultivate gospel transformation. To learn more about our church, visit ebfchurch.org. Today's word comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. I'll be reading from the NIV version. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I'll send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Thank you, Moses. Good morning, EBF family. So good to be with you. And uh, greetings to those joining us via live stream as well. Uh, Kat, thank you for the kids moment. And uh, I, hope, I hope kids, you were listening closely <laughs> as, we, as we went through that. I couldn't help but think about asking my kids, yeah, which, which fruit do you think you struggle with? Knowing very well what I think it is that they struggle with, but just felt convicted in that moment. I need to ask them that. You know, what, what fruit do they think daddy struggles with? Um, (laughs) might be a revealing question, I'm sure, but uh, the fruit of the Spirit, awesome. And also, as far as our ethos community go, thank you again, Moses, for that highlight, and I just want to reiterate how important these communities are for us in the life of the church and how how vital they've been for our family. And to have family within the body of Christ, supporting one another through thick and thin, being able to explore God's Word in depth, in community, and I'm always encouraged by those observations, those insights that people have within the body when, when the Word of God and the Spirit of God and the people of God come together. This morning, um, we are embarking on a new series in the Gospel according to Mark called Jesus the Servant King. I'd love to lead us in a word of prayer before we dive in together. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for this time to gather with our fellow sisters and brothers to worship you, to hear from your word. And Father, we thank you for this fall here in the Evanston area for signs of life, for um, Northwestern being back in full swing. Lord, we pray for our students, our faculty, our staff. God, that you would go with them, before them, this semester and beyond. Lord, would you grant um, greater depth and insight and Lord, Bless their studies, their work. Lord, would everything be done in, through, and to you, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And Holy Spirit, would you illumine your word this morning? Would you, would you cause our eyes to see and our ears to hear, but may it not end there? Lord, would you translate these truths into our hands and cause us to live and to move in you and in the power of your gospel? We love you, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What we have before us here in the gospel according to Mark is like a beautiful mosaic, a magnificent mosaic of the life of Jesus that beckons us into the journey along with Mark the gospel writer as he piece by piece puts together this this magnificent mosaic of the life of Jesus Christ. And it is vitally important in this moment in time as well that we refocus, refocus on the gospel of Jesus Christ and on the essential truths of the Christian faith. To hear and to see not only the Christ of the word, but to hear the very words of Christ found here in this gospel. Mark presents Jesus as the king and inaugurator of his father's kingdom, but he does so in a way that is not expected, not expected by the people. Indian scholar Dexter Mabin writes this. He says, in speaking of Jesus, he fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah, but was not the domineering king the people expected. Instead, he modeled service, sacrifice, and simplicity. Yet he was not weak. His way of life was a radical challenge to the power structures of the day. He calls on us to rethink our own attitudes to people by serving others, especially the downtrodden and marginalized, the people who need us the most. Mark 10, 45 basically encapsulates this entire theme of Jesus the servant king in these words, for even the son of man, Jesus speaking, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As we turn to Mark 1, verses 1 through 8, which we just heard read this morning, we're going to start by exploring seven seven questions that help us set the stage for Mark's gospel. Then the title of Mark and the appeal to Scripture that we find in verses 1 through 3, and then finally the ministry and the message of John the Baptist in verses 4 through 8. So let's start with those seven questions that helps set the stage here in Mark's gospel. First, who is the author, or what do we know about him? Well, this gospel, authorship of this gospel, is commonly attributed to John Mark, John being his Hebrew name and Mark being his Greek name. And John Mark was a relative of, John, of, uh, of Barnabas. His mother's house was a gathering place for the early church there in Jerusalem, and no doubt where he heard many of these stories about Jesus, the Messiah. And he eventually joined Paul and Barnabas on their missionary endeavors, setting out from the place of Antioch. If you know some of the story, too, he experiences a falling out with Paul, but eventually is, is welcomed back and so vital to Paul's ministry that not only does Paul elevate him, but also invites him to his very jail cell as he faces imprisonment in Rome toward the end. Well, John Mark also became the apostle that was Peter's associate and writer as well. And at the end of 1 Peter, as we saw last week, 
Peter sends greetings to Mark, who he calls my son. You can just hear his, this endearing, this, how, how much he elevates and holds up John Mark. In 2 Peter 1.15, we find that Peter intended to make a record of his precious memories surrounding Jesus. And most of the early church fathers viewed the gospel according to Mark as just that. This record of Peter's memories. In fact, we could call it the gospel according to Peter. The gospel according to Peter. Mark is especially vivid when the stories themselves center on Peter. But there's also a unique factor as well that Mark is also painfully realistic about Peter and the other disciples' weaknesses and failures. So you can see how influential Peter is in the putting together of this magnificent work. Second question, where and when did he write? Paul is the first of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it is clear that the other Gospel writers had Mark's writing available to them when they wrote. It is widely held that he wrote sometime in the mid to late 50s AD, but the mid-60s are also possible from Rome, where he faithfully recorded Peter's stories before Peter was then martyred for his faith in A.D. 64. So, he writes only about 30 or so years after Jesus' death, a time when many were still alive and could recount these powerful events that took place and could fact-check along the way, you know? Third question, to whom did he write? Well, In writing in and around Rome, he wrote primarily to Roman, Jewish, and Gentile background believers. And Rome, if you remember, just this sprawling city with a significant population. And part of, I think, why Mark speaks so powerfully into urban centers like where we find ourselves today. Mark clearly wanted to make the good news accessible to as many people as he possibly could. It is because of this wide audience, too, that he clarifies Jewish customs. He, as we'll see along the way, he explains the meaning of different Aramaic phrases for those that may not be as familiar with that language. And while he doesn't quote as much from the Old Testament, the times that he does are laser-like in their focus, as we will see here in this very first passage. Fourth question, what did he write? Well, at the beginning, I mentioned how Mark reads in many ways like a magnificent mosaic. And it's like we are invited into the journey as we go along with Mark, the gospel writer, piece by piece, putting together this mosaic that centers on the person of Christ, the main unifying element. In so doing, he essentially invites, or invents, I should say, invents the genre of scripture that we now come to call the gospels. But as we will see even in the first passage here, The gospel, the way he uses the the word gospel is not the same. It is not in referring to the genre of gospel. It's much, much bigger than that. How did he write? Well, if you've read Mark before, it is the shortest of the gospels. It is fast-paced. It is action-oriented. You find words like immediately that appears over and over again. He includes vivid details, has kind of a lively, down-to-earth sort of way of writing, which is probably one of the reasons I enjoy this gospel so much. And he focuses more on what Jesus did than what he taught, particularly in Jesus' miracles. 
Mark is also keen on highlighting how people responded to what Jesus did with amazement. I found myself underlining that word every time it came across, amazed. How the people were amazed at his teaching, at his actions. It's worth noting, too, that Mark is designed to be heard. Mark is designed to be heard. Perhaps one challenge I would pose for us is to spend some time during this series listening through Mark's gospel, to hear these words read aloud, and also in not only our own time alone with God, but perhaps even together with our families that we would read Mark aloud and hear these words, watch these stories come alive in our own imaginations. How is Mark structured? The sixth question here. Well, the prologue here in verses 1, running all the way to 13, really introduces the themes that are going to be explored by the whole, bo- the whole book. And this is followed by three main stages. Mark is organized kind of geographically, something I really appreciate. And it's like a drama in three acts, three main stages, we might say. You know, I don't know about you, but I like a good map. <laughs> One of the things... I would encourage you to do is when you read through something like Mark to have your finger in the map in the back of the Bible. Or better yet, even if you have like a Bible atlas of some sort that not only shows you the land, the geography, but also highlights elements of the terrain, the features, what the various, uh, what, yeah, what the geography would have looked like. A great example of that here is in this passage, the, the whole notion of the wilderness. What is the wilderness Well, the first stage that takes place uh, is in and around Galilee, running from chapter 1, verse 14, all the way through chapter 8, verse 21. And that's where Jesus heals, he casts out demons, and he performs miracles. Then there seems to be a second stage that begins there at chapter 8, verse 22, which is found on the way to Jerusalem. As Jesus sets his face like flint, heading toward Jerusalem, knowing exactly what it was that lay before him. And then finally, the third stage, beginning in chapter 11, verse 1, starting with the triumphal entry, marks these significant events in the final week of Jesus' life that that take place in Jerusalem. And it's there that Mark's fast pace slows down significantly. These events are marked by days. The final days are marked by hours. And I don't know about you, but I often find myself, maybe it's the nature of like Holy Week, when we think about and reflect upon Christ's sacrifice, giving of himself in love, we often fly through the final week, don't we? From the triumphal entry to his death and his resurrection, one of the things I'm excited about in this series is to slow down, to take some time exploring that final week, and to walk with Jesus to the cross. What is Mark's purpose, or why did he write the the seventh question here? Well, I believe that much of this is actually set out in the very first verse. So that is where we turn. In verses 1 through 3, we find not only the title, but also an appeal to Scripture that is very much connected to that title. Look at verse 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah the Son of God. You know, if Mark intended his gospel to have a title, I believe that this is it. 
Mark does not start off with some elaborate genealogy or with the birth narrative or with a theological foundation of some sort. Instead, he is blunt and to the point and focuses on the gospel's actual beginning. And the very first word in the text here is beginning. It echoes Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning. It is a reminder of God's creation and activity throughout human history. In Jesus, a new creation is at hand. And with the good news of the coming Messiah, God is bringing about a new beginning. The beginning of the good news about Jesus. This is none other than the gospel, a term that Mark uses more frequently than any of the other gospel writers. And just by way of background, in the Greco-Roman world, this word was used or good tidings, another way of using that word, was used to announce things like the birth of the Roman Emperor Augustus, also to report military victories, glad tidings about what has taken place. But it always, in these early writings, it always appears in the plural. These are good tidings, one among others. But what's unique is that in the New Testament, the gospel always appears in the singular. It is the good news of God's intervening on behalf of his people to secure redemption through Jesus. There is no other gospel. The name Jesus was one of the most common first century Jewish names from the Hebrew Joshua and Aramaic Yeshua, meaning the Lord saves. And what follows then are two incredibly important titles, the first being the Messiah, Christ, Messiah, anointed one. This is the title of the promised son of David who would deliver God's people and have his throne established forever. And so coupled with verses two to three, Mark is showing that the time of messianic fulfillment has arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. You know, there is one um, in the Africa Bible commentary, there is a, a, it's kind of a highlighting of, the, of an African saying that is, a name directs destiny. A name directs destiny. And I couldn't help but see, even in Jesus' name, that his name contains the very good news itself. In his name, when we speak of Jesus Christ, we recognize that he is the one anointed by God, anointed by God to carry out his divinely appointed plan of salvation. Well, the second title that Mark uses is the Son of God. The notion of God's Son is first used actually to refer to the people of God in the desert. Hosea 11, 1, in reflecting back on this, says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. This same idea gets picked up and used of David and his faithful son in Psalm 2. Well, then in Mark, the title Son of God reveals Jesus' unique relationship with the Father and his sharing in God's very nature and character. It is the central theme in Mark's Christology. It leaps off the page over and over again throughout Mark's gospel. Jesus being the Son of God is not only in the title here, what what Mark gives us as part of the key to unlock the gospel of Mark, but it is also announced by God at Jesus' very baptism. It is recognized, the, actually the first actor after God 
to speak of the Son of God is the demons who recognize that he is the Son of God. This is then affirmed again at the transfiguration. It is taught by Jesus in the parables. It is stated plainly by Jesus when he appears before the religious leaders of the Sanhedrin. And then in what is perhaps the the climax in this phrase that it is confessed openly by the Roman centurion at the foot of the cross when he says, surely this is the Son of God. Well, verses 2 to 3 link further scriptural support to verse 1 in this appeal to Scripture. And let's look at these together. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. In these verses, Mark weaves together three Old Testament passages, Exodus 23.20, Malachi 3.1, and Isaiah 43. And he attributes them all to Isaiah, perhaps because of Isaiah's passage being the most well-known out of those three. But Mark is keen, I think, on showing us that not only the, the Torah, Exodus, but the major prophets like Isaiah and the minor prophets like Malachi all point to and confirm what he has to say. He grounds the gospel in the hope of Israel expressed in the prophets and prepares us then for the ministry of, the, of John the Baptist that we are about to see. You know, it might be helpful to kind of map out these verses. I don't know if, if like you, you got a little, little tangled when you read of, and see the various characters in these verses. In verse 2, there are three individuals. The one who will send the messenger, God. The messenger who will prepare the way, John the Baptist. And the one whose way is prepared, that is Jesus. Same in verse 3. There's three individuals there, but with a twist. The one calling in the wilderness is John the Baptist. The Lord whose way is made straight is Jesus. But then the ones who are addressed are the people. The people. Lord is a title that is used in the Old Testament for the divine name of Yahweh and marks a significant development in its use here. God has come in the person of Jesus. And so right off the bat, Mark is equating Jesus, this coming one, with God. If you fast forward, this is the very reason the religious leaders seek to to crucify Jesus in the first place. Well, the messenger sent ahead was tasked with preparing the way for the Lord. As the forerunner who points the way to God's promised salvation, the messenger's role would be to prepare and guide the people, kind of like the pillar of cloud does in the wilderness. Later, interpreters would connect the messenger in Malachi 3, who prepares the way for the return, with the return of the prophet Elijah. There is Elijah imagery that is, that is built into this connecting this messenger with the promised Elijah who would go before in the day of the Lord. He would be the herald of the Messiah, making straight paths for him by calling people to repentance and faith. Three times this word way or path is used, reminding us that the gospel is the way of salvation made possible by God. And the voice of the one calling is found in the wilderness. The wilderness a place, a symbol of hope and of also new beginnings. 
It was in the wilderness that God met with Israel and made them his people after they came out of Egypt. It was in the wilderness that Israel learned to trust in God's provision and his protection. The prophets looked back fondly on this time in the wilderness and expressed hope that Israel would once again find their true destiny there. In Ezekiel 20, it was in the wilderness that God would purify them again. And in Isaiah, the voice in the wilderness, Isaiah 40, introduces the grand vision of restoration and of a new exodus that is taking place, a new beginning through God's transforming power. In the wilderness is the right place to expect a new and hopeful beginning for God's people. The point, I believe, in these first three verses is that Jesus is Isaiah's promised Lord, whose identity as the Messiah and as the Son of God is the key that unlocks the entire Gospel of Mark. Mark's Gospel begins with this prophetic hope of the Messiah, the Son of God, and grounds the grandeur in the gospel in both the humanity and the deity of Christ. It is made known to us from the start who Jesus is and how he has come to fulfill God's promises. And we who know who Jesus is from the beginning have been, give the higher, have been given the higher responsibility of following and obeying Jesus. Some reflections on this, on this thought, especially as this phrase is the, is the key that unlocks Mark's gospel, Jesus introduces a new beginning, a new era in human history that goes beyond the events that are found here in, in Mark. Acts 1.1, for instance, says, says that this is all that Jesus began to do and teach, reminding us that there is more to the story. Embracing the gospel of Jesus is embracing a whole new way of life. We become a new creation 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. Not only does Jesus introduce a new beginning, but the gospel is bigger than you think. The gospel is bigger than you think. For Mark, the gospel is more than a set of truths or a set of beliefs to check off. The gospel begins with the hope that is set out in verses 2 and 3 and makes sense only as the continuation of, of what God began in the history of his people, attempts to, it is critical that we not decouple our faith from the Old Testament or to try to diminish the, the origins of God's gospel. Ultimately, though, the gospel, as Mark shows us, the gospel is a person. The gospel is a person. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Jesus, the kingdom of God has been brought near and is now present in the world. And rather than some idea, some other human being, some institution, or some ideology, Jesus is the message of the gospel. Jesus is the message of the gospel. And so we have been given the key that unlocks the entire book of Mark. Morna Hooker writes this, she writes, it is as though Mark were allowing us to view the drama from a heavenly vantage point whence we see things as they really are before he then brings us down to earth where we find characters in the story totally bewildered by what is going on. I love that idea. We have this opportunity to peer into it from the beginning and to see things as they really are. 
It is at the synagogue in Capernaum that the stunned people ask, who is this? Livid religious leaders incredulously ask themselves later, who can forgive sins but God alone? Terrified disciples ask one another, who is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. In his own hometown, they wonder, where did this man get these things? But for us, it is no secret about who Jesus really is. This is not a mystery story where we have to piece together the clues to figure things out by the end. No, Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. This is the confident assertion of someone whose eyes themselves have been opened. And just as Mark goes on, shows us how Jesus healed the blind, so he does for us. This confession of faith takes on even more meaning as the rest of Mark's gospel unfolds. But knowing what we know about Jesus, are we any more willing to embrace the truth of who he is and to follow him in the way? To follow him in the costly way of discipleship. Well, at verses 2 to 3 here highlight the significance then also of the messenger, John the Baptist, His story follows in more detail in verses 4 to 8, where we find the ministry and also the message of John the Baptist. The ministry and the message. First, in verses 4 to 6, we we discover John's location for his ministry, his proclamation, the effect of that proclamation, and also his lifestyle. True to the prophet Isaiah, his location is in the wilderness. In the wilderness. This is most likely the uncultivated and uninhabited uh, barren badlands of the region of Judea toward the southern end of the Jordan. And it is a place of desolation, but it is also a place of hope. Remember, it is where God meets with his people. John was preparing for a new exodus, signified also by passing through the Jordan River, as we will see, marking a new beginning for those that repent and believe. His proclamation is found in verse 4, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John calls the people to prepare for the arrival of the Lord's promised salvation. Participating in this baptism meant an awareness of sin, the need for forgiveness, and then a change in lifestyle moving forward. That's what repentance means. It means a change of mind, a sending away or a banishing of one's previous way of life. Even though he would be known as John the Baptizer, his focus was on repentance. His focus was on repentance with baptism as its chief symbol, a sign that one has truly repented in the first place. This word for baptism appears in some really interesting ways in early writings. It appears, it is used of a knife, (laughs) this is a little gory detail, but a knife that is plunged into a sacrificial animal. It is used to refer to a ship that is engulfed in water during a storm. And it's also used of fabric that is dipped in dye. Dipped in dye. The main precedent for this, this baptism was what Gentiles went through in order to convert to Judaism. 
But now John calls everyone, this is significant, John calls everyone to go through the same initiation, no matter their background, no matter their ethnicity, to be born a Jew was not enough. Everyone was to come to God on the same terms. And in the effect of John's proclamation was dramatic. Verse 5, the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. It is clear that John had a wide appeal and that there was a great hunger, a yearning among the people. And the people's response to John's preaching was confession and baptism. But picture this, this scene. Picture this scene almost defies logic as John rails, as John as John warns them of judgment, as he reveals their sin and calls them to repentance. And then people streaming to the water, responding in repentance and desiring to be baptized. The Jordan was more than any old river. This is not just a a dip in a muddy stream. It was the river God's people originally passed through in order to enter the promised land. It is as if we are seeing here that God is doing it again. He is doing it again. In mentioning John's lifestyle in verse 6, Mark shows that he was definitely not mainstream. Can we use that phrase? John probably would not have been a welcome guest in the Drake Hotel in Chicago. But Mark notes in particular his clothing and his diet. It's really fascinating. His clothing and his diet. His clothing is made of camel's hair with a, a leather belt around his waist. I have a, <clears throat> I should have put this on the screen, but there's a, a picture, um, one of my last vision trips to Iraq, uh, being in northern Iraq, and um, one of the things I got to do was to uh, visit this one merchant in his, in his shop, in his stall, and he had a vest made out of camel's hair. And I got to put that thing on, experience a little bit of the itch, I suppose, but uh, I'll have, to, I'll have to see if I can find that picture and, and, uh, and post it for you guys. But this seems, though, what he's doing here seems to be a deliberate mirroring of the clothing of the prophet Elijah. 2 Kings 1.8, in this story, kind of have to fast forward a little bit, but they, they replied, he had a garment of hair and had a leather belt around his waist. The king said, that was Elijah, the Tishbite. How would you like to be known for that sort of dress? <laughs> This further identifies John as Malachi's promised Elijah, this figure who would go before the Lord. And then in speaking of John in Mark 9, 13, Jesus says, of course, Jesus says, Elijah has come. Elijah has come. He makes this this connection even more explicit. So his clothing, but his diet. His diet was locusts and wild honey. This is one of my kids' most favorite details in all of Scripture. In fact, sometimes we'll be reading about the resurrection, and they want to flip back to the page of John eating bugs. John eats bugs. That's repeated very frequently in our house. Why does John eat bugs is uh, Izzy's favorite question. You know, there was a BBC article just this past week. The title was, The Edible Insects Coming to a Supermarket Near You. How does that sound? Does that sound delightful? Well, locusts were the only type of insect actually permitted by the Mosaic law. 
And like the prophet Elijah, John lived off the land and actually had a surprisingly nutritious diet, if you <laughs> know the ins and outs of these, these items. Like the prophet Elijah, though, he, he lived off the land. His clothing and his diet, his lifestyle, set him apart as shockingly opposite of the religious leaders of the day. And in the setting here in the wilderness, the proclamation and also in lifestyle, Mark associates John with the coming prophet Elijah, this figure who would go before the promised one in the day of the Lord. So John's ministry and then John's message here in verses 7 through 8. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In this brief summary of John's message, it is clear that his purpose was to point forward to Jesus. And he does so by using three contrasts between him and the one who comes after him. The first contrast being that of power or of strength. One more powerful than I. In Mark 3, verse 27, Jesus teaches that he is the only one who is more powerful, powerful enough to bind the strong man, Satan. Then in the second contrasting verse, the rest of verse 7, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. This was considered one of the lowest tasks of a slave, and John did not consider himself worthy to even do this very task for the one to come. Not even one loop. Not even one loop. It stresses, I think here even in, in pointing out Jesus' sandals, it stresses his humanity. And in use, using the word Lord, it stresses his divinity, the divinity of the one to come. So contrasting strength, contrasting worth, and then contrasting baptism. I will baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Even within this image, there is a contrast of the external washing with water and the internal indwelling of the Spirit. John knew it would take more than a splash in the muddy Jordan to give people a new heart and a new spirit. He acknowledges that this baptism is preparatory, while the spirit baptism of the one to come after him is definitive. Christ's true followers are marked by the activity and the power, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 14 says, Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one Spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. In all three of these contrasts, John diverted attention away from himself onto Jesus. And the scene is now set for Jesus' first public appearance in preparation for his ministry, that of his being baptized by John. We'll look at that next week. But I believe the point in these verses, from verses 4 to 8 here, the ministry and the message of John, is that John is Malachi's promised Elijah. John is the prophet Malachi's promised Elijah, whose task was to prepare the way for Jesus by calling people to repentance. Jesus himself would identify John as the one who comes in the spirit of Elijah. 
And John prepares the way by leveling the ground, calling Jew and Gentile, regardless of status. If you look in Luke's gospel, for instance, you have tax collectors, you have soldiers, you have religious leaders that stream to the Jordan. John calls Jew and Gentile alike to repentance. And so a couple of takeaways for us to consider in light of this truth is that the wilderness is a place of powerful biblical memories and expectations. I can't help but think about in my own journey how God had to take me to the desert. In 2004, how God had to take me to the wilderness, albeit with the army at that time, in order to radically get a hold of my life and to call me to ministry all all in that crazy, crazy year. We too might need to go to a place of wilderness to meet with God. Now, some of you are saying, uh, Iraq? (laughs) Careful, you might just join me on the next trip to Iraq if uh, I found myself, well, this is a total aside, but um, when I met, when I first met our team leader, the the organization I went with this last time, when he found out that I had served in the army, he said, hey, you're coming with me the next time I go, and I laughed at him. <laughs> it's not a good idea. Anyway, anyway, we too might need to go to a place of wilderness to meet with God. It could be spiritual. It could be physical. John summoned people away from their routines, from their homes, from their comforts of life, from their materialism, to a place of hope and a place of new beginning, to a place of repentance and a place of God's grace. He is willing to meet us there. God is willing to meet us there and journey with us. So one, one challenge to consider is perhaps a time of spiritual retreat for you to meet with the living God, to be able to set aside some time to do just that. It might be among God's creation. It might be in a time set aside for that. The wilderness is a place of powerful biblical memories and expectations. Repent and respond in faith to the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. If nothing else, this passage should challenge us to become more aware and more convicted of our own sin. Mark, later in Mark 4, 22, we find, for everything that is hidden will eventually be brought into the open, and every secret will be brought to the light. If you do not know Christ, you are still in your sins. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The gospel we will see unfold throughout the pages of Mark. We are called to abandon the old way of life and to turn to Christ in repentance and faith. Those who do have the Holy Spirit, those who do turn to God in repentance and faith, have the Holy Spirit come and permeate every aspect of their lives, enabling them to bear the very fruit of God's Spirit. Last takeaway for us to consider is that Jesus is leading the way for us today. He is out front. He is blazing the trail. The way is a key theme in Mark. Passages, we'll see passages of Jesus actually leading the way. And the disciples spend most of the time getting in the way of what Jesus is trying to accomplish. And this should serve as a warning to us today. Edward Schweitzer uses the illustration of a a heavy snowfall that strands a young boy in the home of a friend after school. Couldn't help but think about being in Colorado and experiencing the bomb cyclone 
That sounds totally made up, but it's, some, it's a big snowstorm that we experienced there at one point. But think about this, this illustration of a heavy snowfall that strands a young boy in the home of a friend after school. He cannot get home, Schweitzer writes, until his father comes with his strong shoulders and breaks the way through three feet of snow. The boy follows him in his footsteps and yet walks in a totally different way. Father is not merely his teacher or example, or otherwise the boy would have to break his own way, only copying the action of the father. Nor is it a vicarious act of the father, otherwise the boy would just remain in the warm room of his friend and think that his father would go home instead of himself. The problem, that's the end of the quote, the problem is that the way Jesus prepares for us to go home is the road less traveled. It is not the way we want to go. It is difficult. It is marked with suffering. And Mark suggests from the beginning that a life of discipleship involves withdrawal and sacrifice. We are called to follow Jesus in suffering and mission. And so we who find ourselves between the advents are the voices calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. So how do we prepare the way for his coming? We prepare the way by reflecting Christ's character and cross-bearing discipleship. We prepare the way by diverting attention away from ourselves and onto Christ. We prepare the way for his return by following the path he has marked out for us in the worldwide proclamation of the gospel. Mark 13.10, and the gospel must first be preached to all nations. And just as John acknowledged that the gifts of salvation and of the Spirit were not his to give, but the one who is greater, so should we. May this be a model for all of us who proclaim the coming of the one who is far greater. Jesus is Isaiah's promised Lord, whose identity as the Messiah and the Son of God is the key that unlocks the entire Gospel of Mark. And John is Malachi's promised Elijah, whose task was to prepare the way for, the, for Jesus by calling people to repentance and faith. The Gospel of Mark is really all just the beginning of what God wants to do in and through you. So look to Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Embrace the gospel by turning to him in repentance and faith and follow in his footsteps as we prepare the way for his arrival. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for your life-giving word. And we pray that you would go before us in this series in the Gospel of Mark. Father, would you help your truth to come alive, to meet us right where we are in our own longings, in our own pain. And Father, I do pray that you would stir in the hearts of those here who do not know you, God. Would you grant a deeper awareness of their sin? Father, would they turn to you in repentance and faith? knowing that you are the only one capable of doing anything about our greatest need. Lord Jesus, we praise you for the gospel, the gospel that is all about you. And would you find us faithful in the task of declaring and doing the gospel before a watching world, in our work, in our studies, in our rest, in our families, would you cause us to both proclaim and practice your great gospel. Lord, use us. 
to prepare the way for Jesus' powerful return. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To hear more messages from EBF, subscribe to our podcast. And to find out how to get connected with our church, visit ebfchurch.org.